So let's say you take a Chinese model and then try to adapt it for Indonesia or Singapore or Malaysia. That might not work either. A U.S. model might not be ready for the different local sensitivities or the just that local context. I think there's an opportunity there for startups and an opportunity for startups to create products or to create services using generative AI that that understand the local countries, the local regulation. So it's a question of how do you adapt and localize to those cultures, to countries, and to their regulations, to their rules, to their languages, culture, religions? I think it's a massive challenge and a really big opportunity for startups, including startups in the region. Hi, folks. Welcome back to On Call with Insignia, where you go on call for leaders innovating the future of Southeast Asia's internet and digital economy, or as we like to call it, Asia Innovation. I'm your host, Paolo Pignac. And in this episode, it's actually quite a unique episode for us here in the show because it'll be the first time that we're actually having a journalist on the podcast to share their insights. I think it's going to be an interesting perspective to hear about, especially since they have that, I would say, like maybe bird's eye view or third person perspective when it comes to the ecosystem. So really interested to hear her thoughts on some of the trends and themes that uh, she has covered herself over the over recent months in Southeast Asia and Asia Pacific region. So we have none other than Fanny Potkin. So she's the Asia technology correspondent at Reuters. We continue our conversation from the previous episode, which covered more of the semiconductor industry supply chain diversification and the expansion of global multinationals into Southeast Asia. From here on, Fanny shares more about AI regulation, data privacy, generative AI, and media relations for startups. Let's dive right into the call. But I wanted to move on to another interesting emerging technology trend, which is AI. And it's very much a global a global theme that we're seeing here, especially with regulation. When you recently wrote about it, especially with regards to cybersecurity, data privacy, all of that. And I, I wanted to tie it also to other cycles of regulation that we've seen over the past few years in terms of social media, the last, I guess, in the previous year with Twitter, TikTok. And then other things, years back, right, dealing in Southeast Asia, for example. Having covered a lot of these cycles of regulation formation, and more recently, we've seen China and then ASEAN form draw lines and that. What do you think we can expect for AI and data privacy in terms of regulation moving forward? Okay, so let's try to go with AI regulation first. So the big move that's going on right now is lawmakers in Europe are pushing really hard to or leading the world in a push to regulate AI and to make up basically what will be what will be known as basically the AI Act. But that act, which is still which is still basically going through the legislative process, will take years, actually specifically at least three years to implement. So in the meantime, the EU with the US is pushing to draft a voluntary kind of code of conduct on AI that they are hoping, according to the European Commission Vice President Margaret Vestecker, could be put forward in weeks. And they want this would be like a voluntary, still pretty intense, still pretty intense kind of AI code. And the EU officials, we literally had several senior EU officials, the senior European officials and some EU officials in Singapore recently at the Asia Tech Week are going globally and basically lobbying for more global assistance on this. They want to be talking to other countries and they're really worried about the AI. The U.S., so the, the EU is pushing for regulation. The U.S. is involved in the voluntary code talks, but 
if you speak to officials, they feel that this is not very accurate to the U.S. way, where less regulation, more innovation, and they're afraid that the European way will hurt regulation. They're still involved with the EU, but it puts this kind of very unique environment where this drive for regulation and this drive or this drive for rules is happening at an unprecedented speed compared to social media, where governments started asking those questions years and years after, after those tools became massive in our lives. So that's a big factor in AI regulation. And then what we covered for Reuters is right now, Tian State, and this is driven by Singapore, are pushing for what's going to be called the ASEAN, I think this is cute, ASEAN Guide to AI Governance and Ethics. They're in the early drafting stage. And this would also be voluntary. And as one official warned me, this is ASEAN. It's going to take a very long time because everything needs to be like consensus. And we are not the EU. I had another official tell me, this is probably going to be in the spirit of the EU, but it's not going to be like the EU and we're not copying the EU here. But it also does result in you seeing ASEAN even before AI really, I mean, generative AI becomes a massive driver in Southeast Asia. Obviously, we're already seeing it. We're seeing startups using it, producing ASEAN itself, doing its own voluntary code, voluntary guide, voluntary guidelines at the same time as the EU, which is new, which I've never seen happen. And for ASEAN, from what we're hearing, it should be announced in basically early next year. It's, yeah, it's still very early in the drafting process. So that's quite interesting. And then for data privacy guideline, the new personal data privacy Personal data protection law in Indonesia became effective in October 2022. But now what that means is getting more, is getting more serious now. You are seeing a draft personal data protection degree that I believe is still pending promulgation in Vietnam and a new decree on that does mention data privacy as part of the cybersecurity law. You're seeing data protection guidelines in Thailand, which became effective in 2021 as well. And you are seeing, I think there is an increased administrative fine of up to 10% of an organization annual turnover in Singapore, if it's over 10 million, under the Personal Data Protection Act that also came into effect in 2022. And you're seeing a lot of discussion on privacy law reform proposals in Malaysia as well, that on stuff like mandatory breach notification and also discussions as well on fines on data privacy on the Philippines. So in a different way, less as an ASEAN thing, but but it does come up in ASEAN meetings. There seems to be a drive for increased regulation to protect users and to protect data privacy. I think for Southeast Asia, the question is really going to be implementation and how regulators basically deal with this. Did you see any link between those two? like types of guidelines or regulation moving forward? Uh, or do you think it would take some time to, to actually, because especially for Gen AI, I think data is a bread and butter of this technology. These two things are pretty much entangled with each other. Like, you, like from a regulation perspective, like how do you see that relationship evolving? I think the memorization property for generative AI yeah. causes both. So by memorization, basically, one would expect AI models to generalize from the individual data points used to train the models. So when you use the AI model, there's no trace of the underlying data. But as those neural networks underpinning that, that, that they're basically like the basis of generative AI, AI models, as they expand, 
Researchers are finding that those models have a tendency to memorize, and this causes copyright and confidentiality issues for enterprises and companies and for people. You had a case a couple of months ago where Samsung employees reportedly unintentionally leaked sensitive information by pasting a copy yeah, to chat GPT. potential and like right. copyrighted source code into ChatGPT because they wanted to check for errors. And then you had another who shared a reporting of an internal meeting. So given that ChatGPT uses for user prompt to train and improve their model, unless users want out, that information gets into the wild. So for me, that's a really interesting question. How do you make sure that the right to anonymity, like how do you know that generative AI won't event this information identifying users and copyrighted data. And that ties into your point on how that applies to data privacy, because some of the data privacy models in Singapore, notably, basically have points like anonymous data. What about if you're de-anonymized? And that's not really covered by, as far as I've seen, any of the, any of the regulation. So that would be a challenge for regulators and one that Singapore in particular is already looking at and is concerned on this. Wait, so there is, IMDA just put out a white paper with researchers that actually makes that specific point and that's looking more at the idea of guardrails. Singapore in general is looking more at the idea of guardrails versus hard regulation. It's more, they're looking more at how do you adapt current regulations versus drafting new regulations for AI. But that ties into your point. How do we... How should companies deal with this? And because AI and machine learning models have always operated on the basis of identifying patterns and before that present this relevant data. And current generative AI models all require massive amounts of data. And many of them have scraped the web for data. And we've seen those other concerns. And I do think copyrighted materials, even though this is more concerns the company than users, it does, it goes to the same topic. You're seeing like getting images to stable diffusion over alleged like copyright violation for using their watermark photo collection as part of the straight data. So I, I think that's quite interesting. And I think it will require regulators to evolve and to see what happens on this. And the other issues, the models are changing so quickly that though obviously data has the impact on the model performance and the implication on privacy, copyright, and biases, they will probably keep evolving as models keep changing. So transparency on type, something I've heard from several officials, transparency on type of training data sets is quite important. And for policymakers to try to clarify ambiguity around the requirements for like data privacy and copyright for their respective regulations. That's something that Singapore, I believe, is already emphasizing, but that obviously no one knows yet on what it's come like the what the full impact is going to be. I think it's really a, yeah, it's really also a technology question as it is a regulation question with what you mentioned about the memorization aspect and all these models still being like a black box in terms of like traceability and connecting the dots between the source data and the output that comes out of these models. So yeah, still very much I don't need to say anything really in that regard, but I think really an interesting question to to discuss for the ecosystem. But to wrap up this particular topic, I wanted to ask, what do you see are the implications of this regula regulatory developments for sort of AI startups coming out of the region? We're seeing a lot more, I guess, opportunity in business enterprise use cases. One, because like the data is more, a little bit more specific to the customer and you're not really dealing with 
data on, on the web necessarily. And then there's more direct benefits or ROI that could be derived from such solutions. Given this kind of trend towards like enterprise use cases, like how do you see these regulatory developments affecting startups working in this space? It's a bit early to say for Southeast Asia because the guide is really not out and governments are thinking in ways. But it is an interesting question. I think broadly, we're seeing concerns from some governments. It's This isn't the white paper for Singapore about biases that generative AI might have in their languages. Because obviously, the other thing here that ties into Southeast Asia, I'll answer your point maybe a bit more broadly, that most of those models are trained in English and they're not as good. Mm -hmm in other languages that that might just be practically, but also they're not looking at biases or issues in other languages and or looking at the local context. So for me, a big opportunity that's going to come in Southeast Asia, I was talking to is going to be basically localization of, of like big, of big, like chat GBT style already chatbots and the like to local markets and in accordance to local cultures and local languages and to the way local, I guess, local regulations work. And then where like the question might not be, might not be basically new laws, but old laws. For example, this is going to seem like a bit of a silly example. So Indonesia has, Indonesia has a lot of laws on blasphemy and basically discriminations against other religions and races. Mm. So the bar the legal law in Indonesia is much higher than in other markets. So, for example, a couple of years ago, there was a really badly photographed picture of Maruf Amin, who is the who is the vice president and who is a religious cleric, so an Islamic cleric and leader, basically photographed wearing a Santa hat, a Santa suit, which Singapore, probably not in Singapore would be seen as offensive. If you ask this to a U.S. trained model, they won't really see why this may break Indonesian law. But in Indonesia, this was a police case where the police launched an investigation to find, to find who photoshopped the pictures. So if you take that example and you look at this example, with an, if you're giving that to do to a generative AI model, that model is not going to be trained for the local regulation or the local cultural sensitivity of different mar markets. And is for generative AIs, obviously, it's a very tricky thing to do. So I think there will be an opportunity for startups that can do products that, or that can take products and adapt them, bigger products and adapt them to local market, or that can work with, that can create their own localized products, or that can create solutions that work in hand-to-hand -hand with ChatGPT or the like to address the question, to address localization in markets, to address local regulation and local laws. Because there is the demand. And I was hearing, so like companies like NVIDIA have had like hundreds of governments and a lot of them are governments in Asia basically ask them for, say, oh, we want our own AI big ML language. We want our own ChatGPT. So the question is, who go for official? Like, who are they going to buy their, their language from? Are they going to go American? Are they going to go Chinese? Where if you, we've played around with Ernie, the bot from Baidu. So if you ask anything from an Ernie that's too sensitive, Ernie would be very politely tell you, oh, I'm so sorry, we cannot answer this. This is, it's not an appropriate question to ask, or I don't remember the exact language, but Ernie will politely put its hand up and say, I can't answer on, on anything that's very sensitive and that very broad for China. So that, so let's say you take a Chinese model and then try to adapt it for Indonesia or Singapore, Malaysia, that might not work either. A US model might not be ready for the different local sensitivities or the just that local context. 
it basically, so it's, I think there's an opportunity there for startups and an opportunity for startups that basically to, to create products or to create services using generative AI that, that, that understand the local countries, the local regulation. So it's a question of, and the training sets are from the U.S. and they're like, so how do you adapt and localize to those cultures, to countries and to their regulations, their rules, to their languages, culture, religions? I think it's a massive challenge. I hope that's making sense. And a really big opportunity for startups, including startups in the region. Yeah, no, I think localization will be a really, I think, interesting mode for a lot of these companies to have, like AI companies in particular, as they grow and really mature. And I think even some of the companies that Insignia has partnered with that are working on AI have found that sort of mode in developing things specifically for whether it's unique data sets to a particular region or like specific languages or accents or dialects. Yeah. With yeah. AI, great example of basically mm -hmm. using AI and localizing uh, like two markets to the whole. I think that's brilliant. I think companies like with AI that, that, that dig into the countries like cultural sensitivity, Singlish, like I, I think mm -hmm. that's brilliant. But there's going to be a market for this. Yeah. So I think as much as we say that AI, like you have a lot of these big companies that are operating in the space, I think there's this whole like like different layers that startups can build in and really cater to local needs. Um, so on that note, I wanted to shift gears into, I think, a topic, given our audience includes a lot of founders here that have been, are looking to different platforms or avenues to enhance their thought leadership for themselves and for their companies. I think a question that I can't help but ask to the is like, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs looking to tap into these channels like Reuters, for example, to, to build their branding and tell their story? Okay. Basically, I think the biggest point that you're going to hear from a lot of different media is before pitching reporters, know what they're, what, know what they do, not necessarily the reporters, but know what the media does and what it's not going to cover. For example, as much as, and I have friends who've turned to me and they're like, oh, Fanny, we're, we've raised this great seed round. Can Reuters cover it? And no, we really, we barely cover companies that are not unicorns. And we are covering rounds that I think, I've, I don't remember the last time I covered a round that was under 300 million in my, I might, I've covered some smaller ones. But for us, learn, learn what, first of all, know what is your expectation, is your expectation, know who you want to reach. So are you trying, it's great to have the goal to be in like bigger media or international media, but who are you trying to reach? Are you trying to reach other investors? Are you trying to reach potential clients? Where is that, what does that media's audience mean for you? If you're trying to reach more investors or then a more kind of like tech or financial focus, leadership will work better for what you're trying to pitch. If you're a seed company or if you're a small startup, you may be very interesting but it will be harder for you to get coverage in bigger, in bigger publications because they tend to cover bigger rounds for bigger mm -hmm. companies. The exception to that being is if you offer a value proposition uh, that is going on to really big teams that might be AI, or if you have a very unusual or very big investor that hasn't invested in Southeast Asia, that might be part. So learn, look at what the publication publishes, have realistic expectations based on what the publication publishes, and think about, have, make sure you're pitching the right reporter. For example, for me, I get pitches for India all the time from Indian startups. I do not cover Indian startups. We have a great Indian team though. So basically make sure that you're pitching the right person 
is a very big one. Google their binaries, look at what stories they reported, look at what basically the publication is, is doing and think about what your audience is, you know, what you want. And if you are pitching an international media and, but you want local audiences as well, look at what, look at what the reach of that big media is in your, in a local market. So let's say you want to break something, you want to break something in the New York Times, Reuters or Bloomberg, but you also want it to be well-read basically in say the Philippines or Thailand or Indonesia. Look at how much basically local medias are republishing from those articles, from those medias or citing them. So for example, Reuters, for us, we are pretty, we will be picked up very well, both in English and in Indonesian, in Indonesia, but that might not, that will be less picked up or for, let's say Vietnam, things like this. Know the media that you're pitching, check that you're pitching the right reporter as well, or just before you pitch, if you just get the reporters doing work that you think are interesting, is interesting, and you are not sure whether they'll cover your company, but you feel that you can offer a certain expertise or a certain value proposition, you can also say, hey, look, I've read your work. I'm doing X and Y. I'm very interested in this. I'd love to grab coffee and tell you about this. Would you be open to a chat? Because I think trying to build, do an informal chat in some cases might work better, depending on person covers. Yeah, no, I think a lot of great practical advice for founders listening in and anybody who's helping out these smaller companies, startups really build their thought leadership and their exposure. So on that note, I wanted to move into our rapid fire round. So we've talked about a lot of different challenging, complex topics. So I wanted to cover, just have a little bit more fun towards the end of this call and wrap up nicely there. Yeah, just some short, sweet answers will do. First up, what superpower of, you talked to a lot of entrepreneurs over the years, what superpower of an entrepreneur would you find useful to have in your work as a journalist? I guess the capacity to create new products and being able, being running a company and being, being the one to run, to launch new products and to innovate new products. I'm very lucky to work with the company that I do. It's a massive corporation. So if I say, look, I want to launch a new journalistic product, I can. So I really admire entrepreneurs and startup founders who are there and who basically get ideas and launch very, very different types of products or services. I find that quite amazing. Actually, yeah, you brought something that I think my interest so what kind of innovation is there for journalism? AI is a big one. So AI, AI is, has been a big thing in journalism for a while, actually. I don't think people realize how much. So for Reuters, for example, a lot of our articles are actually automated. So a lot of sports results, a lot of translation into other languages are automated. This has been happening for a decade. This is not a new thing. And they're basically improving the automation and this is all AI. So yeah, sports results, stocks, basically basic articles. So more and more of that gets automated. Another part, journalists all, almost all hate to transcribe their interviews. You're seeing transcription yeah. software. You're generally seeing more automation and generative AI kind of thing, a small part. There is actually in the media industry, some media giants that have said they want to do more with generative AI and they want to have articles completely produced by generative AI, which can work to a degree, but it's also somewhat tricky because generative AI has can put out misinformation and it right. can do so very convincingly when what we saw like recently was the completely fake legal briefs with fake cases that gave a lawyer didn't want to write his legal briefs. <laughs> do it. Right. 
and which generate the risk for hallucinations where the AI will insist something is true, will be completely certain. And you'll be like, oh, I must be wrong. You are not wrong. The AI is wrong. But it will just make you, it will do it with such kind of uncanny certainty that, that it will really convince you that you're wrong, which is a big risk for misinformation and disinformation for regulators. Not something that we got on, but it's a risk for media and it's a risk for regulators. So how media innovates using AI, but also guards itself against the risk is a big thing for the industry. Yeah. The language you brought up about the whole hallucination problem with AI. If you were to be invited to produce a Netflix or OTD show, what would be the title of the show? And what would be the one-liner? So many ideas right now. Okay. <laughs> First idea on my mind, I would do a cross Southeast Asia thrillers. I think you've seen a lot of very great movies into the dark underbelly, basically, of couples in Korea. I think Southeast Asia tycoons have their own very interesting story. So I would do a cross Southeast Asia thriller set in the world of tycoons and tech with a lot of with and how it occasionally some tycoons can meet criminality and the mafia. And I would set it in that world. Title TBD. So the whole underbelly like genre is really interesting. Looking back now, what is a skill? Could be a soft skill or hard skill that you believe you should have learned back in your time as a screenwriter? Coding. I wish I had learned how to code better. I, really yeah, bad. terrible at it. If you could recommend somebody alive or dead to be 24-7 executive coach of entrepreneurs listening into our show, who would it be? I think that's a really hard one because it really depends on what you do. However, I will tell you, a, I've been watching Welcome to Wrexham, the TV show mm. about Mark Reynolds and Rob McElhinney buying, buying basically a football, like a football team that was doing really badly in the UK. And I, that got me really interested into Ryan Reynolds' business track record, which is amazing. Basically, he sells his aviation gins to Yao Geo for massive, like a half billion, I think. He sells and then still remains controlling or like significant stakes or involvement in all those companies that he sells. He also has Mint Mobile, his interests in fintech and in cybersecurity companies. And he was speaking to, in an interview about basically, and I feel this is an, a good message for entrepreneurs and investors, but how he, he basically only invests in companies that have strong brand stories and strong identities, either in the case of the football club, like decades long identities or over a hundred years of that case, or newer companies, but that have such a strong story and such a strong identity. And that he's not looking at the sector. He's looking for that grammar, that identity and that story and how that can be sold. And I thought that was a really interesting message, right? Unexpected from what you typically hear this man focus on. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting thesis and also <laughs> an answer I wasn't expecting <laughs> for this question. So thanks for that. What's your favorite go-to destination in Southeast Asia? Or is there a trip you're most looking forward to taking in the next few months? I love traveling in Southeast Asia. It's the biggest privilege of basically living here. There's so many trips. I love different places for different... Top of mind. <laughs> the first thing. Different things. I'm going to Jakarta in July and I'm very excited to go to Jakarta. Jakarta is it's a weird, chaotic city, but it has some of the greatest people. And I'm very excited to basically be back in Jakarta. And then if I hope to have time to make it to Joke Jakarta, which is just this lovely cultural ancestral city with fantastic food. But honestly, I could, yeah, a list of 20 opinions for food certainly as well. Looking forward to Fanny's travel log. <laughs> if you ever end up making one. What's your favorite activity to de-stress? Cook, watch way too many streaming shows. The Rex Hub Show. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of reading books, is there a book that you'd recommend to our listeners? One of the books I'm reading right now is Surveillance State. It's inside mm -hmm. China's quest to launch a new era of social control 
It's by Lisa Lynn and Joshua basically at the Wall Street Journal and a really great book looking at facial recognition and kind of the intersection of tech and government for China with a lot of implications for Southeast Asia. Really enjoying it. Yeah, and really, I guess a, a book and a theme to end our conversation on is that what sort of we've been talking about sort of the intersection of tech with regulation, with trade and geopolitics and all of that. So I think many topics which we don't often talk about on the show, but I think have many implications for, for founders, investors here in the region. So thank you for coming on and sharing all these numbers, research and insights. And yeah, do check Patty's art, art articles out on Reuters. She's covering a lot of interesting stuff moving forward, stuff that we've talked about on the show. But yeah, thanks again, Patty, for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on this call. Follow us or subscribe wherever you're watching or listening to this call so you get notified on the next one and I'll catch you there.